welcome to Bethlehem Covenant Church's sermon podcast. We pray that you will be blessed as you listen to this message. Well, good morning, and thank you for joining us on this first Sunday of Advent as we celebrate the week of hope and look at what that means for us today. Today's scripture passage is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21, which say, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, if you're at all like me, I can sometimes do things first out of tradition or habit before actually stopping to understand them fully. And so for many years, I've actually set out candles around my Advent wreath, and I've proceeded to light them following the prompts written by others. Even when growing up, my family would set out an Advent wreath on the kitchen table, and my sisters and I would take turns lighting the candles each Sunday. But I've really taken the time to look deeply into the beauty and the meaning of the Advent wreath and its candles. And so I did a little research and found out that the very first Advent wreath was actually created in 1839 when a Lutheran minister used a wagon wheel and 24 candles to teach children at a local mission project about Christ at Christmas. He used four white candles to be lit every Sunday and 20 red candles, one to be lit each day of the week. A circle shape, in his case a wagon wheel, but a circle shape has always been used since the inception of the Advent wreath or the Advent uh, celebration to represent God's unending love and character. Sometimes the candles have been red and white as in its earliest forms, other times blue, and most recently pink and purple. Even a white candle can be added in the center to be lit on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve like we do to celebrate the day of Christ's birth. So each candle on our Advent wreaths then remind us a piece about God's story with us. Hope, faith, joy, and peace. Some scholars have even further group these themes into pairs to better understand Christ's comings. With Advent, we are celebrating and we are being reminded of the first Christmas 2,000 years ago. And so we can take care then to balance these four themes, hope, faith, joy, and peace, by looking at the first two with the forward vision. So faith and hope are a part of this expectation of Christ's second coming. And so the joy and peace serve as a reminder of our feelings when we look backwards and we remember Christ's first coming many, many years ago. So hope and faith look forward, and joy and peace look in reverse. So hope is the candle we light on the very first week of Advent that we do today. Hope for us, though, looks very different than what it did for the Israelites long ago. If hope for us is to look forward to Christ's second coming, then it is definitely not what it looked like for the Israelites. They were waiting for the Messiah, Christ's first coming, and at this point in time, we're stuck in a period of relative silence from God. 
So long before our beautifully decorated Advent wreaths, hope told a very different story. Hope for the Israelite nation just had a much different tune to it. So today I want to look at what hope looks like or what it meant for the prophets of God, and then what hope looks like today for us as the people of God. There are 17 books in the Old Testament that are considered books of prophecy, but I want to focus on the main four and then their messages. Overall, a prophet's message was typically summarized with three main categories, either repentance, God's judgment, and future blessing. Isaiah is one of the longest prophetic books and provides us with some of the most beautiful passages of future blessing and therefore future hope. They gave hope to the people of Israel in a time that they really needed it to tell them about this coming Messiah. One of the most well-known passages we just heard earlier today from Pastor Dan. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his greatness, of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So in all of Isaiah's various and sometimes lengthy messages to the people, he was still always preaching this idea of a coming salvation. He spoke openly about God's judgment on all the rebelling nations, but that righteousness that would come from Emmanuel, this idea of God with us. Isaiah was always coming back to this resounding tune of hope that a new king was coming, and one that would change their lives forever. He wanted to make sure that the people knew there was something and really someone to look forward to. Jeremiah's prophetic message from God was similar to that of Isaiah's. Jeremiah first and foremost preached, though, against the sins of the people and his specific nation. But there's always this underlying theme of God's ability to restore health and wholeness to the people if they would only repent of their wrongdoing. Listen to what the Lord is telling Jeremiah to say to God's people. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And you will walk in the way which I have commanded you, and that will be well with you. So amidst all of the evil and the wrongdoing in Jeremiah's home country, God was still speaking to his beloved children, reminding them of the hope and security that they could have if they would only choose to listen to his voice and put God back on the throne of their lives. Even though this message was for a very different time, it is a message that we can hear and applies to us over and over that we can have hope and security if we choose to only listen to God's voice and put God back on the throne of our lives. It was true for the Israelites, and it's true for us today. Lamentations is the next prophet, or the next book that I want to consider. And in Lamentations, there is a lot of lament, hence where we get the book name, Lamentations. And there's also a lot of tears. This prophet's often known as the crying prophet because he was really spending a lot of time crying over the sins of the people and he was proclaiming God's judgment because of the sins of the nation. The focus is on the nation of God, of Israel, and the desperate situation that they have put themselves in. Yet the author doesn't forget to mention the most forgiving traits about God because he wants to make sure that people know that God's judgment is not the only thing they should be focusing on. The author cries out, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. While there were a lot of shed tears from this prophet, he too was also providing that glimmer of hope to the people that it was God's mercies and his compassions that prevailed, not our sinfulness. 
The final prophet I want to look at quickly is Ezekiel. And this prophet focused mainly on Israel's sin, Israel's sin and then the condemnation that came out as a result of their sin. Yet the words in this book always come back to this view of God's future blessing in sight. The nation of Israel deeply understood that they had not been following God like they should, as they were in exile far away from their promised land. Their sins were clear. They were no longer in the land that they were promised. They had been taken away and put somewhere different. But Ezekiel and ultimately God were still reminding them about the hope that they should have for their future. Although their current situation remained bleak in the foreign country that they were in, it wasn't the end. Consider this verse in Ezekiel from chapter 36, which says, Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all of your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places will be rebuilt, and the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. And they will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. The waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. The desolate wasteland that they were referring to was not just the actual land, but it was the hearts of the people too. Through Ezekiel, God was offering that constant voice of hope in their future. And this was an eternal hope and not just a temporary reprieve. So again, before Christ's first coming, a prophet's job, literally their God-ordained assignment, was to tell whoever God commanded them to, whatever God wanted them to say. It could have been a message of repentance, of blessing, or promise, and like we've seen in all four of these prophets, a message of hope. God was using the prophets to provide his people with a message always centering on hope and this idea of reconciliation, bringing God's people back into a right relationship with him because he loves them. But now we switch from a hope that is waiting for something to happen to a hope that is looking towards the future with assurance. And this is the hope we have today. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, hope switches meaning. When we're moving from Tikva and Yakel in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament to this idea of Elpis in the Greek language of the New Testament. With Christ coming at Christmas, hope changes just from this anticipation of something to come to an expectation of his coming. With Christ, we are expecting his second coming as much as we are expecting our eternal salvation and our heavenly home because of Christ. We are not just hoping for it, but we are counting on it. And we count on it because Christ chose to leave his heavenly home and dwell among us to show us the way to God. We now have a reason and a way to get there. This is the reason for the season. Jesus Christ came to, live, um, to, came to live among us. Emmanuel, God with us, came to give us more hope. Christ's coming at Christmas ended the time when we needed to hope just for the Messiah, for a Savior. We now already have that in Jesus. He came and brought more hope so that now we could hope for and look forward to our future in heaven and to his second coming. And while we always should feel filled with hope and joy and peace because of this truth of Christ coming at Christmas, sometimes we don't always feel full of hope and joy and peace. Sometimes this feeling can wane. It can happen for me and it can happen for anyone. I recently read this blog reminding us about why we choose to celebrate Advent annually. And it said, one, it helps us to intentionally prepare our hearts for Christmas when the hustle of the holidays threatens to steal our peace. 
Two, it reminds us to pause and thank Jesus for how he has changed our lives. And three, the one I think is the most powerful, is that it gives us a reason to praise God for his plan of redemption through Jesus and reminds us that the story isn't over. Why? Because Jesus is coming again soon. And this, this is our hope today, that God has a plan of redemption and Jesus is coming again. Celebrating this annually, celebrating Advent annually, just like we celebrate our birthdays, gives us this opportunity and continued reminder of the promises and hope we have in Christ. Talking about and teaching these stories and traditions of Advent each year to our kids, our friends, and our neighbors, this is a way that we can continue to share hope. If I was only able to hear the Christmas story once in my life, I think I'd eventually forget it, lose hope. My hope would just dry up and disappear. But fortunately, we retell these stories and we retell these truths annually. Each year, then, it also gives us a chance to build on this foundation of hope. And better yet, we hope now with expectation and not just anticipation. And I am eternally grateful that I'm not just hoping for a heavenly home with God, but I am counting on it. I'm looking forward to heaven with more than just a vague sense of waiting, but I'm looking forward to it with the completion of God's reconciliation plan. But I'm looking forward to this with assurance and expectation. God's redemptive plan through Jesus gives me the hope to carry on each and every day. But what we choose to do with those days in between Christ's first coming and when we'll come again, he'll come again, or when we enter into heaven and in his presence is what we should focus on today. And that also brings us back to our main scripture for today. The prophets of God, like we saw in the um, Old Testament prophets, their job was to be the voice to the people when they needed hope. But today, that job title has switched to us. We are now God's prophets, his messengers, and his voice to others. The declarations of hope that we read and reread each year during Advent that bring us so much joy and happiness are no longer just for us to hold close to our hearts. The second Corinthians passage ends with, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Just like God did with the prophets by sending them and giving them a message to share, we have become the modern day ambassadors and messengers of Christ. So what does an ambassador do? Well, in a foreign country, an ambassador that is sent ideally acts on behalf of that home nation that sent them. They coordinate activities for the home nation, hopefully with the highest ethical standards, and they act as a personal representative of that country and as a, on behalf of the president or the authority that sent them. And while we have a president, our president, or really any political figure for that matter, should not be who we serve first. Therefore, we are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. With Christ as our head, we are his personal representatives here on earth. We have become his hands and feet in our temporary home. We then daily choose to act on God's behalf. We can also choose then to work with the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God that creates opportunities for us to enter into God's amazing work here on earth. We are representing God in all we do. When we choose to become that new creation, we are representing God in every part of our lives. In college, I was part of a sorority, and one of the rules of the organization when you joined was that you could never get your Greek letters tattooed on yourself. Now, this might sound a little odd, but when we joined, we agreed to conduct ourselves in a matter that represented the organization well, and even more so when we would wear our letters. 
So normally we would just put our pins on when we had a nice meal on our dresses or our shirts for a special occasion. But the thought was, if you had them tattooed on yourself, and then sometimes as college students do, you head down to O Street and you lift it up for an evening, you were then not living into the standards that you agreed upon when you, when you joined the sorority. And so then you were not accepting the responsibility of the letters you were wearing. But as Christians, we cannot just take off our Christness like a college kid can with their Greek letters. Once we are a new creation, the new has come. You are a brand new creation. And there was joy from the angels of God in heaven when you became that new creation. We are now ambassadors of a heavenly king, and he has a job for us to do. Now I'm working backwards through the text a little bit here, but in verse 18 it says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So what is this message of reconciliation? Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. God has given us a job, an assignment of reconciliation. And reconcile really just means to make an adjustment for a difference. And it was originally used as a term for money changers, but we are going to use it in a heavenly sense. So with God's gracious gift of Christ at Christmas, God was adjusting for our sinfulness with a sinless Savior. We are not perfect, but Christ is perfect, and so he makes up the difference for my lack. This then becomes my job to share this hope with others, to share about this gift of reconciliation, to be made right again, about Christ coming at Christmas, and as a gift to make us and our whole world whole. This is a reminder that our whole world needs today. Every evening, as Jason and I spend some time praying with our kids at night, we typically ask them two things. One, we ask them to share some things that they are thankful for to tell God. And then two, what's something or someone that we can be praying for that we can ask God's help with. After they typically list a few things that they are thankful for, they then then almost on repeat ask to pray for the wars in Ukraine and Afghanistan and all the other countries with conflict that we don't even know about. Our world needs hope, and a hope that they can actually look forward to with assurance and certainty. They need to hear about the gift of Christ at Christmas that brings reconciliation and wholeness. In a conflict-filled world, we need to hear from people that restoration and peace is possible, and it is possible all because of Christ. This 2 Corinthian passage, I think, then shares three ways that we can offer hope to others. One, by seeing others as God sees them. Two, by boasting about what's in the heart. And three, by persuading others. The first way we can offer hope and restoration today is by regarding no one from a worldly point of view or then choosing to see people as God sees them, by choosing not to count other people's sins against them. And we essentially pray this every week in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. But it's one thing to pray it every Sunday aloud. It's a completely different matter to live it out. Think about how you might enter a room full of people one morning, like when you walk into church on a busy Sunday morning. You might quickly quickly scan the room and see if there's anyone you know or that you, you can talk to. And when you do that, looking for those that are similar to you, you are subconsciously judging those that don't. For example, I might say, hmm, well, those people don't have coffee cups in their hands, so I wouldn't start there. And those people have kids, so I wouldn't be able to get a word in. And those people are just standing around talking, or not talking, and so that doesn't look very fun. But when I do this, I have just passed judgment on the people that God may have been wanting me to see. 
I haven't chosen to forgive them for anything. Instead, I've chosen to judge them, and I'm heaping judgment back on myself. I am looking at the flesh when God would look at only at the heart. I have, in about 15 seconds' time, chosen to view people the way the world does. We are all so quick to judge when we see someone, but what if we took a figurative lens and placed it over our eyes to remind ourselves of how God would view this person? Because when I don't, I then end up passing over a person that is struggling with the loss of a friendship or a relationship and is keeping her kids close for comfort, but really just wishes someone would reach out. I pass over the new believer that's walked into the church for the first time and just really wants a cup of coffee, but feels so uncomfortable that they don't even want to ask. These are just simple examples, but if I started to look at people the way Jesus did, I think I would start to be more compassionate, have more empathy, and be able to be a voice of hope to the hopeless. When Jesus looked out onto the crowd, he had compassion for them, for they were lost and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is how I want to look at people, to look beyond the human flesh and the things that we see and see the heart underneath instead. Not to regard them as a sinner, but to remember that I too am a sinner saved by grace alone. I want to see people as God sees them and approach them with the love and respect that Jesus would have given them. The second thing that we can do to be God's voice of hope to people today is by boasting about what's in the heart. Verse 12 says, We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride only in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. This Christmas season is full of wonderful opportunities to give to others. Even at church, we have Christmas stockings we can fill for the Waverly Care Center. We have gifts you can buy for children in foster care. You can ring a bell for the Salvation Army. You can serve food at the City Mission. You can donate toys at almost every store that you're at, and so much more. And honestly, we should be doing all of these things. This is a time of year that gives us the great opportunity to give back in abundance above our normal giving and give someone else a little bit of extra joy this season. But just like Paul writes, are we taking pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart? My parents were always bothered with the greeting happy holidays as opposed to Merry Christmas because it just wasn't the average holiday we were celebrating. It was Merry Christmas, right? Everything should have written on it, and everyone should be saying Merry Christmas. And I have been indoctrinated to agree. <laughs> I choose a card that says Merry Christmas and not Happy Holidays. I respond with Merry Christmas when someone else says thank you or Happy Holidays. As if I, by doing so, just proved some great point to them. But I wonder if they've both just become the same. Many people celebrate Christmas without Christ at all. With just some quick searching, I found that researchers said about 64% of the U.S. population considered them Christian by their own standards. And we won't get into what exactly that means, but we'll go with 64% of the population. But that almost 93%, or just over 93% of the population, celebrates Christmas. So that's 30% of the population, or 100 million people, who would use these greetings interchangeably. These words, then, Merry Christmas, have nearly lost their meaning in our secular world, and honestly, I think it's okay, because it gives us a chance to not take pride in the appearance of things and instead start boasting about what's in the heart. What if we took our simple response of Merry Christmas a step further, and we tried something like, it is because of the hope my Savior Jesus gives me. Or if in the stockings we packed, we included a note about how Jesus has given us hope and wrote out our personal testimony. And the gifts that we donate, we prayed over first before dropping them into the bins at the store exit. 2 Corinthians 4.5 says, We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. 
How often, though, do we do things with a hidden agenda of wanting to be seen? I think Jesus would have wanted us to look closely about our intentions and our hearts, to then do some things in secret and other times speak truthfully about the hope to those around us. So try to give some of your Christmas giving behind closed doors and then change your Merry Christmas to a Merry Christmas and thanks to be to my God who gives me hope I have this season. Verse 11 says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. So in all these ways, we've been trying to work to be the voice of hope to people. And the greatest hope we can give someone is by telling them about the gift of Jesus. First starting at Christmas with his birth and finishing at Easter with his deaths, death and ultimately, the most exciting, his resurrection. He made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God made him Christ who had no sin, was completely sin-free, sinless, to become sin for us, to take my sin upon himself, so that in Christ we might become right with God. This is God's redemptive plan for all of us, that he started before the creation of the world. Christmas is not just a time to exchange gifts and sing, some, sing fun songs. It can also be a very painful time for others who have experienced loss or don't have the same happy memories of the holidays that you do. Christmas provides us a bigger and a better hope than just hoping that I get the new slippers I wanted. What if we all asked one person to come with us to Christmas Eve service, and better yet, even come back with us through Easter? To give someone else a chance to experience hope in a brand new way and not just rely on the circumstances of the holidays to give us joy. 1 Timothy 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to the hope that you have so that anyone who asks for the reason of the hope that you have. Be ready to tell anyone who asks you why you have hope this season. Not a vague sense of wanting something good to happen, but the expectation you have because of Christ. Spend some time writing down your own story about your faith in Christ so that you are prepared to share it. Whether you've been a believer for 30 days or 30 years, your story has power because it showcases the amazing hope that you have in Christ and what he has done in your life, and no one can refute your story. And last, I want to reiterate why we would choose to do any of this, because honestly, these things are work. It is much easier to sit by my decorated Christmas tree next to a warm fire, sipping some hot coffee and doing some online shopping for myself. It is much easier to respond with Merry Christmas than it is to engage new friends in conversation. So why do we even bother to give hope to others or view them in a new way? It says, for Christ's love compels us. God's love is so great that it should compel us and move us forward into action, not to remain fireside by myself. God sent the most incredible, incredible gift of Christ at Christmas, and that, that should propel us forward in action into the world to act justly to those around us, to love mercy, and to tell others about God's redemptive plan. We are God's messengers of love to those around us, and honestly, Christmas is the perfect time to get back to work. God has already given us this assignment of hope to be his messengers, but we must choose to offer this hope to others. We are God's ambassadors. We are sent by Christ. Hope was originally from the prophets of God to the people of God. But now with no prophets, the hope comes from the people of God. And that is us. Merry Christmas and have a wonderful week. 
Thanks for listening to this week's message. To stay up to date with all of Bethlehem Covenant Church's ministries and events, head to bccwaverly.org.